We're obviously starting a new series, our pastors on vacation. Uh, we'll be doing a series, uh, our pastors on staff, called uh, Chasing God's Heart. Chasing God's Heart. And um, we're going to be spending three weeks in the life of David and kind of just viewing and kind of, kind of gleaning principles from the Word of God. The Word of God gives David the title, A Man After God's Own Heart. And so we thought we'd look into what is it about him, what it is about his character that, uh, that makes him a man after God's own heart. And how can we be that ourselves? How can we chase after that? How can we chase his heart? So that's the idea behind where we're going. And I uh, hope you'll enjoy it. Um, it's always a joy for us to be able to join uh, the teaching ministry on Sunday mornings. And so it's around this time of year that we all... Um, get excited about one particular thing, football. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and if you don't, you should, because it's a really good thing. Uh, there was no OTAs this year, but uh, preseason has started, and it doesn't look that good for our Niners, uh, according to Friday night. But uh, um, every time around this time of year, I always like to pay attention a little closely because there's always a new batch of people coming into the league. There's always a new bunch of rookies, these, these guys who are who are drafted and now they're on the team. And, and there's always, in the first couple of weeks of, 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 of uh, training camp, there's something that happens to them. Uh, like last year, Tim Tebow was given a mohawk. That was pretty funny. Got it on TV. Uh, they go through this kind of almost like a hazing kind of a, of a thing where maybe they'll duct tape a football player to the football uprights and um, spill Gatorade on them. <laughs> That's just pretty funny. I mean, I just really, whatever it may be, uh, maybe the, the veterans make the rookies carry their pads. And why do they do that? Well, it's a proving ground. You've got to pay your dues. Uh, we, we're kind of used to this in other areas of, of, of life. For instance, like when you join a new organization, maybe it's a new job or something like that, you, oftentimes you'll, you'll start off with limited authority, right? Or uh, you're low man on the totem pole. Why? Well, it's a proving ground. You've got to pay your dues. How many of you guys watch Deadliest Catch? Raise your hand. Anybody? Else? Yes. I know there's some men out there who love that show. Uh, uh, Whale Wars. I just saw the last, the last episode of Whale Wars last night. Um, yeah, in, 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 in the ocean world of, of, of being on a ship, the captain is king, and everybody else kind of falls in line. And if you're new to the ship, you're a greenhorn or a deckhand. Uh, greenhorn just means you're, you're an apprentice. You're, you're inexperienced. You get the worst jobs. You work the hardest. And you get paid the least. And why in the world would you do that? Why in the world would you put yourself through that? Well, because you're hoping that one day you'll work yourself up the ladder and not have to do that anymore. You see, it's a proving ground. And you've got to pay your dues. Chasing God's heart, the proving ground. I call this message the proving ground because we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at the beginning of David's legacy and chronicling his responses to the challenges of his youth. But what kind of proving ground does God have for us as believers? I mean, so clearly he's not into hazing us or belittling us. But does he put us through anything to kind of form us into leaders? What does God's proving ground look like? And that's what we're going to look at today. 
we're going to look at how to handle our weaknesses and how to overcome our tests. What should you do when you feel sidelined because of inability? And what should you do when you face adversity? How do you overcome weaknesses? And how do you pass the test? And for that, we're going to go to the book of 1 Samuel. So get your Bible out. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll be staying in the book of 1 Samuel today, but we'll be moving around a lot. I've got to cover all of David's uh, kind of uh, life until he becomes king. So if you just get used to the book of 1 Samuel, we'll be flipping around there a lot and uh, kind of trying to glean some principles from David's life. And first we're going to look at, 1 Samuel chapter 16, first we're going to look at the myth of inadequacy. How do you handle your inadequacies? It's the idea that inadequacy is a myth. How do you handle it when you feel inadequate? What do you do? First Samuel chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 6. Before we go there, just understand that Samuel goes on his way to Jesse's house per the instructions of the Lord, and he's going to anoint a new king. He's frustrated with Saul. Um, uh, Saul has gone his own way, and he said, that's it, we're going to have a new king. And so he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, and this is what we see in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elam and thought, surely the Lord's anointing stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shemath pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent and had him brought in. He was Rudy, with the fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. We'll stop there. What's the point of that little narrative? What's the point? It seems to be simple. It's the idea that we, while we evaluate people on their outward appearance, God evaluates people based on their heart. While we evaluate people's worth on what we can see on the outside, God values what people are worth based on what's inside of them. Now, why in the world would God choose David? Why doesn't he anoint a person who is most qualified? Why does he pick the most unlikely person of the bunch? He's young. He's short. He's inexperienced. He's untrained. And he's a farmer. 
what could God be thinking? The fact is that God can overcome our perceived deficiencies as long as he has our heart. See Moses. See, see Peter. But it's interesting to me how sometimes we'll use our perceived deficiencies as an excuse not to serve the Lord. I'll give you an example. Um, I've been doing, you know, uh, working, you know, in ministry for 10, 15 years, if you count before I was a full-time pastor, all those. I was working in church for 15 years. Um, the thing I hear the most, what was in youth ministry and now even in adult ministry, that I hear the most why people will give me the reasons why they won't do something. For instance, um, you are great at... Uh, at doing these things. Now I want to put you in a small group leader. I want you to be in charge of the spiritual lives of some people, whether it's students or adults. I, I, you're ready for that. You can do this. And, and, and if I can train you and I can train 25 of you, now I've just expanded what I can do through 25 of you, right? So that's the whole idea, right? And so you can do this. And this is what I'll get back. You know, man, I just, I don't feel ready to do that. I don't feel like if somebody asked me a question and I didn't know the answer and it was about the Bible, then it would be on me that, that it, did, it didn't get done. I feel inadequate. What if I can't answer the question? I hear this all the time. I just don't feel ready. I don't feel mature enough. I don't feel enough Bible savvy to pull that off. So I don't think I'll do it. And it's so interesting to me that over the years, what I have seen is quite the opposite. Not that you study and learn and figure it out and then do, but in the doing, you learn. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we see. For instance, in fact, we, 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 we train our life group leaders this way. We say, just join, and, and, but what do I do if I don't know the answer? Okay, so we said, this is where we're going to train you in that situation where you don't know the answer. All right? So here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit there, and some theological question comes up, and you don't know the answer, and here's what you do. Now, this is profound. All right? You say, I don't know. <laughs> you say, I don't know the answer to that, but by next week I will. By next week. You know, I just did this myself. T- two years ago, I was teaching a class for the Master's College, and it's a, it's a Bible class, and one of the students asked a really good question, and I didn't know the answer. And I said, I just came off a training meeting with our life groups, and I said, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> this might sound crazy to you, but actually there's some things in this big old book that I don't know, right? And so I said, but what I'll do is by next week you'll have an answer. And I went and I studied books, and I, if I can't find the books, I asked Pastor Phil or Paul, and I get the answer, right? And I come back and I gave them the answer, or I at least gave them what I believe what the answer was. So it's not like I knew everything and then started serving the Lord. No, I started serving the Lord, and you know what? Sometimes in that process, I grow, and you learn. How do you handle your inadequacies? Your perceived inadequacies. The thing that sidelines you from, from doing things for God. The little voice inside that, that, that's timid. How do you handle that? Do you cower away into uselessness? Have you ever considered relying on God to help you rather than secluding yourself from his work? I mean, David, so clearly he wasn't the best man for the job, but God said, I want you. And let's see how he responds. Go to 
1 Samuel chapter 17. One chapter over, we're going to begin at verse 32. How do you handle your inadequacies? Let's see what David does. Verse 32. The context before we read it is David is on assignment from his father. He's bringing his brothers and military officials some food. They're on the war lines, and uh, his dad wants to make sure they're taken care of, and so he goes there. In the process of going there to deliver some food, uh, he sees Goliath, and Goliath is coming every day, and he's taunting the nation of Israel, and David is watching this man come out, taunt the armies of God, and no one's doing anything about it. No one's doing anything about it. And this little guy, untrained guy, says, I'm going to do something about this. Look at verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. It's so funny. I mean, it's comical. You have a whole army. Everybody's scared out of their mind to fight this guy. And David goes, I'll do it. I volunteer. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he has been fighting a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) You don't understand, Saul. I'm a farmer. (laughs) When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now we're going to skip forward a little bit. You have to understand, after they figured out that he could not fit into any armor, (laughs) he just moved on without it. In verse 41, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, rudy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Apparently, Goliath's like nine feet tall. What would you say? This is what David says. David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear the javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Oh, you're going to give me to the birds of the air? Well, I'm going to give the whole army. <laughs> I mean, he's just bold. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. How did David handle his inadequacy? What did he do? Complete faith, complete trust, total reliance on God. He relied on God. Completely and totally relied on God. And it was a relentless faith. I mean, I love what he says. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. 
so clearly, I'm the opposite of what you would think a fighter should look like. On the surface, it looks like a joke. What in the world am I doing here? You ever felt like that? What in the world am I doing here? I'm so clearly unfit for this task. I'm not the most qualified. I'm not the most well-trained. I may not even have the giftings necessarily for it. But if my God is involved, watch out. Watch out. If our God is involved, watch out. You see, it's not about our inadequacies as much as it is about our God who is able to use us in spite of our inadequacy. It's not about our inadequacies as much as it's about how our God can use us in spite of our inadequacies. Most of you guys know that um, I had the privilege of going to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary last month for two weeks in an effort to earn a doctorate of ministry degree, and I say in an effort because I've done nothing yet. (laughs) I'm just efforting myself to that point, and hopefully I'll get done in four or five years or something like that. But as I was studying this sermon, I, I just couldn't help to fill the parallels a little bit. You see, the first day of class, I walked into this room, and there's 10 guys there. And, and I'm the new guy. I think there's one other new guy with me. These guys have known each other for three years already if they met every year, and I'm coming late to the party kind of a thing. And um, 10 guys in the room, and the first thing they said, well, we have some new people, so let's go around the room and let's ask everybody their name, um, where you work, what do you do, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm in this room full of these guys. And the first guy goes, my name is such and such. I'm 35 years old. Uh, I'm 33. So this guy's 35 years old, and I'm a pastor, senior pastor, lead pastor at a church of 4,000 people. And you're like, wow. <laughs> okay. The next guy to the right of him says, well, I'm 33 years old. So now he's my age. Uh, I'm the senior pastor in a church in the Philippines of thousands of people. Like, okay. (laughs) And it's coming to me, you know. And uh, uh, next guy, yeah, I'm I'm just an adult pastor at a church uh, in Houston, um, Texas, 20,000 people. Uh, Keeps on going down the line. Uh, uh, One guy is a campus pastor for Andy Stanley, church in uh, North, Point, North Point Community Church in Atlanta. I don't know. Maybe a lot of you guys are familiar with Charles Stanley. Uh, Charles Stanley has a, has a ministry that a lot of people are well familiar with and, and really hold in high regard. His son, Andy Stanley, is kind of like the same thing for the younger generation. Um, us young guys really hold him in high, high, high regard. Only a church of fifteen to 30,000 people, you know, depending if you count all of the satellite church sites all over the state, you know. Well, this guy was one of the campus pastors at a new church site that they had built a $30 million building for. And uh, he's younger than me, in charge of 50-some-odd staff and four to 6,000 adults. And then it's my turn. 
I mean, as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, this is so funny. I can't believe this. I'm sitting in this room with these highfalutin people who are like changing the world. And, and, I, and who am I at this table? What am I doing here? Like, what am I doing here? What can I provide? What kind of insight could I provide? I mean, so clearly, after this service, we could get in your car. I could drive you down to San Pablo in Richmond, where I grew up. And, and I could show you areas where I wouldn't want my kids to walk alone at night in. That's where I grew up. You could, you could survey, like my first grade through eighth grade years, and, and if you were to divide up the class into thirds, you know, the top third, the second third, and the last third of the class, you'd have to put me in the last third of the class. I mean, I never was on the honor roll. I, I never did good at studying. I wasn't, just wasn't, wasn't my, my thing. I, I, what in the world am I doing there? If you, if you asked at eighth grade graduation, who's most likely to graduate college? It would be so clearly not me. I mean, it was so, there's so many other people who would be. And then to go to graduate school, are you out of your mind? It had to be like million to one odds. And then to top it all off, everybody goes around the room and, and does their little, this is what I do. And, you know, and everybody's doing this thing. And I feel like, you know, just this little chump at the table. And uh, then they go, well, why don't we have the new guy pray for us before we get started? I'm going, oh. I remember I went back to my room and I texted. First thing I did is text Paul and going, what's going on? These guys are, I mean, it was just, I mean, it was great to be in the room and learn from, you know, that caliber of people. And so I quieted myself and I said, I was almost praying to myself, Lord, help me get through this. Did you know pastors feel inadequate sometimes? I mean, that might be shocking to you. But I'm telling you, I was, I was the bottom of the bottom. And I had two seconds to pray. I don't remember much, but I remember stumbling over my words and feeling like I had no business there. And then just kind of like a quiet confidence just came over me. just begin praying. Things that I've been praying since I was a little boy. Oh, God. I'm so grateful. That you choose foolish things to confound the wise. You know, Father, I might not be a vessel of silver, 
or gold. But have a yielded vessel. And this passage came to mind. I'll just read it to you. Just take this in. Especially if you struggle in this area, just close your eyes and take this in. It comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says this. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become the wisdom, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you feel inadequate. Join the party, man. All of us do. And it is that heart that says, I am nothing. I, God, so clearly, I can't do anything unless you do it through me. It's that heart that he will reward. It's that heart that he will use because he knows in the end you will give him the glory for it. You won't sit there and say, well, oh, man, I must have done something. I'm like, Ooh, I'm so glad. God, God, I'm so glad that you have me instead of the Jehovah's Witnesses because, oh, my goodness, if the Jehovah's Witnesses had me, that kingdom would grow. No. I'm nothing special. It's him. Our God will not share his glory with anyone. He's selfish in that sense, and it's right, because he's the only one who deserves glory. How do you handle your inadequacies? Do you hide in solitude? Do you take a risk, put it all on the line, trust in God, fully rely on him, and watch what he does through you? It's the proving ground of our faith. What do you do with your inadequacies? Trust Him. Rely on Him. Depend on Him. And go for it. Do something. Lead a Bible study. Lead a life group. Children's ministry. Junior high ministry. Do something for Him. Something. But it's important to know that just because you rely on him doesn't mean you won't be tested. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to look at the test of adversity. How do you handle life's adversity? After David kills Goliath, there are chants going around the town. Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. Now, obviously, Saul's not going to like this, so he starts keeping an eye on David. And then finally, he, 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 he despises 
his reputation so much that he devises a scheme to get rid of him. He thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll give him my daughter in exchange for like full-fledged, uh, dedicated service on frontline warfare. So I'll give you my daughter if you'll be my number one warrior. Of course, what he's hoping is that the Philistines will kill David. That's why he does it. Hopefully he'll just die in battle. So I'll give you my daughter if you, in exchange for you being a warrior for me, and then you'll die, and my problem's solved. But God keeps on giving him favor. And finally, Saul takes matters into his own hands. Let's look at 1 Samuel 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done but benefited you greatly? He took his life in his hands when, when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you wrong, do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And Saul listened to David, and he took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And so Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation and brought him back to Saul. And David was with Saul as before. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with force, and they had fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in the house with his spear in hand. And while David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall and spear him, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night David made good on his escape. You talk about some adversity. I mean, here you have David living and, and, and serving the king. He knows he's the next anointed king, and yet he's full-fledged serving wholeheartedly the king. God, why are you allowing me to suffer in the midst of doing your will? I, I, I mean, looking at it from his perspective, like, what has he done wrong? All he's doing is trying to serve this king, and this kills, king's trying to kill him. What would you do in that situation? Would you blame God? Would you fight back? Seem like natural responses, in all honesty. But let's see what David does. Go to, go to chapter 24. Again, we're broad stroking it. We're just trying to get a picture of his life. Go to chapter 24. Let's see what David does in the midst of this adversity. David's now on the run, and he's hiding from Saul, running for his life. When an unbelievable opportunity comes up. Let's look at this. Verse 1, chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men, all of Israel, and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came into a sheep's pen along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in that cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift a finger against him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off a corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am guilty of no wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, and you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. It's an amazing story of David's restraint. Here he has his opportunity to take him out. Really, take him out and become king. And he doesn't take it. And why doesn't he take it? Because he won't lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. But David, you're the next in line. I mean, you're going to be king. God's already promised you that. That may be so, so, but I will not force the Lord's hand. And I will not force his timing. What's the principle here? In the face of adversity, wait on God's timing. In the face of adversity, wait on God's timing. Let God be the one to promote you. Let God be the one to vindicate you. There's no need to fight back, for God will ultimately avenge the wrongs than against you. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you feel like you're, you're caught in a place of adversity. Maybe you feel like, I don't know which way to run. What do I do? Wait on God's timing. Let Him promote you. Let Him vindicate you. You know, on a separate note, there's, we in church ministry, we hear a lot about different scenarios where, where people in churches form a coup of sorts to get rid of leadership. While I was in Dallas, one of the guys there planted a church, grew it to 1,500 people, hired a second, uh, a, a second person on staff, and that guy and the elders got together and fired the senior pastor for no reason, no moral reason at all. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, I couldn't believe it. He's the most humble guy. I'm, what did you do? Well, he said, what could I do? I'm just, I cannot believe that just happened to you. What was the reason they gave you? They just wanted to put the other guy in place. No moral wrong, nothing like that. Just took him out. We hear this stuff all the time. And sometimes it comes down in the form of a righteous endeavor. We're fighting for theology or doctrine. But a lot of times those doctrines are secondary issues and they're just a mask for insubordination. I remember Ted Montoya, the best thing for me when I was 18 years old, he had me read a book called A Tale of Three Kings. And I'd recommend it to anybody, especially us young people, read this book, A Tale of Three Kings. It chronicles the, the life of Saul, David, and Absalom as it relates to leadership. How to succeed a person the right way versus how to succeed the, a person the wrong way. And I remember after reading that book, getting in prayer and saying, you know what? I will never, never lift my finger against the Lord's anointed. I know, it's a 
the Lord, the person that God has established there, I will never, even if I'm right, I will not do anything against them. I'll leave before I do that. It was a commitment to myself at 18 years old. Most church conflicts should, should and could be resolved if people would just submit to leadership. God will deal with leaders and keep them accountable for how they lead. And God will deal with us based on how we respond to our leadership. Even if we're theologically correct, we can still handle it wrong. You know, it's kind of near and dear in my heart. I have some friends right now in ministry, different churches. Thank God we haven't had this at Valley. But um, there's these young guys coming up right now, and and I say young, I know I'm young, but I mean like 18, 19 year old, and they figured out the church, you know, they figured out the Bible, and they, they know how to do things right, you know. They're, you know, it's a big movement right now, these young guys. And you know, a lot of the, the theology that they, they aspire to, and a lot of things that their banner theological issues, I agree with. I love it. I think it's great. But they're so questioning the church, the American church, and how we do things, and how we spend money, and how, how we preach, and all these things. And unfortunately, they're getting a reputation as well of, of going into churches, becoming pastors, and then becoming devices amongst the staff, and leaving in honorable ways. And you hear the war stories of, of the trail they leave behind, causing disruptive and being divisive. And I just think to myself, Unable to submit, unable to come under. Just be careful how you behave in God's church. Just be careful how you behave in God's church. I find it hard to believe that God would reward someone for splitting a church that preaches Jesus, but you don't like the way they spend money or you don't like the way they preach. Just be careful. Don't lift a finger against the Lord's anointed. He will be the judge in the end. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Keep watch over, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage of you. You guys, especially us young guys, we've got to learn how to come under. We've got to learn how to honor the leadership that God's placed before us. And to lift a finger against them is not the right way. What do we do with our inadequacies and how do we respond to adversity? In our inadequacy, we need to rely on God. And in adversity, we need to rely on God's timing. It's the proving ground for future leaders. Rely, trust, depend on Him and His timing. You know, our pastor has been speaking a lot about the next generation of leaders to take on this church. It's one of the things we've been talking about. And he's looking for us. When I say us, I mean me included. I mean, just if you're 35 and younger, just think of this towards you. We're thinking about the next 40 years and, and how we will need new elders and new pastors and new deacons. Have you ever considered yourself being yourself being maybe the answer to that problem? But I'm too young. I don't know enough. 
Would you accept God's invitation into the proving ground where you'll be tested? Where you'll have to rely on Him when you are inadequate? Are you ready for that? Forty years ago, a young man in his mid-twenties did something unthinkable. He, instead of sticking with a denomination that provided stability in his ordination, he, he felt God call him uh, to branch off on his own. He wanted to preach certain truths with freedom and not be confined by a denomination. And he, and he wanted to bring God's Word to the common person. We're now celebrating 40 years of God's faithfulness at Valley Bible Church. Two buildings, millions of dollars in assets, and thousands of people affected. Why? Because our pastor relied on God, relied on his timing. Trusted in God and trusted in his timing. Fully depended on God. Fully depended on his timing. Chase after God's heart. Rely on him. Rely on his timing. Go ahead and bow your heads. We'll pray. We're going to have the ushers come forward. We're going to take an offering after I pray. And uh, I just encourage you as you bow your heads, just, just remember that in the times where you feel like you are the most inadequate, We serve a God who takes our weakness and becomes our strength. Wait on Him. See what He does. Father, thank You so much for this morning. I thank You that You brought everybody here. Oh, I pray, Lord, that You'd help me rely on You and rely on Your timing. To remember that it's not about me, but it's all about You. That You are a God who who can find strength in my inadequacies and in the face of adversity if I trust in you and trust in your timing you'll be the one to validate you'll be the one to vindicate you're that kind of God thank you for it in Jesus name Amen